CNN. Radio. There is a place in America that nobody had ever heard of until the appearance of a five-year-old girl named Quivengene. The place is called the bathtub. One day, the storm's gonna blow, the ground's gonna sink, and the water's gonna rise up so high, there ain't gonna be no bathtub, just a whole bunch of water. This bathtub and the girl through whose eyes we see it was discovered through serendipity by a young film director named Ben Zeitlin. It was actually something that somebody said to me down in South Louisiana, um, you know, down in Terrebonne Parish. Somebody was referring to this island called Ile de Jean Charles, um, where we shot a lot of the film. And they referred to it um, saying, you know, we live in the bathtub. We're always filling up with water. That bathtub evolved into what you could call the magical realism of the movie Beasts of the Southern Wild. This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. And joining us now is director Ben Zeitlin. Uh, his film is up for Best Picture. Best Actress, he's up for Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. There may be more. Ben, any other awards you're up for this year? Uh, those are all. Those are all the Oscars. You got them. Okay. So tell me something. I wouldn't know how to pitch this movie because there was so much imagination. Did you? Did you give this the traditional Hollywood pitch? Definitely not. Uh, you know, w one of the adages that you get taught um, as you're sort of coming up as a struggling indie filmmaker is that if you can't fit the, the concept for your film on the back of a business card, then you're never going to get it financed. Um, and I actually think that's one of the most horrible lessons uh, that you get because, you know, a lot of times when I walk out of a movie, the reason that I don't like it is because I could explain it on the back of a business card. Um, and this movie was just much more complicated than that and much more expansive. There were too many ideas to, to sort of pitch that way. And, you know, we had this sort of unbelievable, miraculous good fortune to find these financiers that were also first time filmmakers. They ran a nonprofit company. They didn't have a sort of box office motivation hanging over their heads. And, and they really let us explain the movie over the course of probably five hours, you know, in a in a bar in New Orleans. And, and at the end of that, they, they believed in the in the feeling we were trying to create as opposed to, you know, a sort of snappy thing where you say, you know, it's the Avengers meets the wedding crashers or something. But this is great. No, you had five hours to explain it. You know what they call that? The stuck elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that was the only way to do it. I actually I actually do. I mean, whenever I have an idea, I do believe in being able to put it on the back of a business card. In fact, one second. Guys, can you roll in my business card? <laughs> uh, that's the kind of business card I like. So so let me let's start from <laughs> let's start from the beginning. What came into your mind when you decided you were gonna do something on this? How long did it take you to conceive of what ended up on camera? Just take us through the process of how you got from that initial gleam of light to what's wound up on the screen. You know, it was um, the way I like to work and the way this very much worked is that it sort of begins as a giant uh, mess of ideas. You know, you get so many things coming into your head when you start thinking about the story you want to tell. And, you know, the, the early basis was trying to tell a story about you know, these towns that are holding out at the, at the bottom of South Louisiana and people that are really fighting uh, to survive um, and, and keep their culture alive. So that's where it started. But there was all a lot of ideas relating to that. There was the play that um, Lucy Alibar, um, who's a friend of mine and a playwright, wrote. And there were all those ideas. And the early drafts were these sprawling masses of ideas. And then it took us about a year and a half to kind of go from that initial burst of energy 
wheedling this stuff down, focusing it, finding what the real heart of the story was, um, which really ended up being the relationship between this father and daughter and and streamlining that into a script that we could actually make for a very low budget. And so that, all that took about a year and a half. So, so I really have to pause there because, you know, for everybody in a creative industry to think that from what you called the initial burst of energy to figuring out what the story was took a year and a half is just incredible to me. And it's probably why more people don't do it that way, because that's a very expensive process if time is money. Yeah, but time was not money. (laughs) Um, What was was time? Time was uh, survival. You know, know, it wasn't like we had a development deal or something like that in, in any sort of traditional sense. You know, we were scraping by paying as little rent as we possibly could and doing whatever we had to give ourselves the time we needed to get the film right. And that, that was true at, at every stage. It was always about stretching whatever limited resources you had into as much time as you could possibly take and making sure that each each stage of the, of the film was perfect before uh, we proceeded or as perfect as we could get it. Did you have any deadlines in mind whatsoever or was it just going to happen the way it happened? Well, the deadline, you know, eventually happened. I mean, what we were doing is we were writing and we were, because a lot of the film, you know, wasn't just something that was imagined. It was something that was drawn out of people that we were casting and places that we were going. Um, And so we were exploring South Louisiana, visiting these towns, learning how to do all these things um, that were getting written into the script. And at the same time, we were casting and finding people that were changing the characters and re-inspiring things. And so what eventually became the ticking clock is when we found Quivenjane Wallace, who was, you know, five years old at the time. And at that point, we knew we had to make the film before she grew up. So that, that became the deadline, um, was, was, was getting the film off the ground, you know, at a time when she had a break from school uh, and, and all the factors that go into um, shooting a film with a, with a six-year-old in the lead. And so now I have to tell the audience, I mean, in some ways, you, if you're listening to this podcast, you might want to pause here go out and see the movie and come back and finish it because it'll mean much more to you. Or maybe even better yet, click the podcast twice, listen to the whole thing. Because Quivenjane Wallace, this little girl who you said compelled you to make the movie, that was the moment. She is incredible. How long yeah. How long did it take you to recognize you had your girl? Um, not long at all. I mean, it was the first callback, which was, which was the first time I met her, it was abundantly clear uh, that we had never seen anybody that could perform the way that she could. I mean, she 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 just was a, a prodigy, um, and 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 in that very first audition, did things that we had never seen from not only a child but but an adult or, or any first time actor we had ever seen. And so we knew that we had sort of stumbled our way into a miracle, and 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 that we had to recognize that and 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 make sure that we we made the film with her. What did she do that you'd never seen before? <clears throat> she could act silently. I, I, if, 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 there's one, if there's one thing that, I mean, beyond just sort of her, her incredible personality, I mean, she just has this uh, unbelievably self-possessed, fearless focus and clarity and, and just all these things. But, but, I, but the thing that I'd never seen before out of any kid, you know, you have a lot of kids that can act while they're talking and they can take a line and say it in a sad way or say it in an angry way. Um, but she had the ability to be completely quiet and maintain that emotion. And she had the ability to pivot her emotions in the middle of silence and, and shift her 
uh, shift the way that, that she was feeling in the most subtle and interesting ways. And, and just when you had a camera on her, you just felt for this character. And she suddenly went from being, you know, a little kid that was a victim or somebody that was cute or somebody that was funny into being this this real hero and this real warrior. Um, that that was really an extraordinary thing to behold from a five-year-old. You know, and as I watched her, you know, as a father of three children, uh, I, I sort of wish for that kind of power and that kind of self-sufficiency that came through in her character, you wish for, for that to be a piece of every one of your children. How did you bring that out of her? Were you running that first callback? Were you prompting her with certain things? And if so, what, what did you say to her that led to her reactions that convinced you this was it? I mean, a, lo- a lot of it was her instincts. You know, I, I, I really just try to give people a scenario and all I told her um, we were we were playing out a scene between her and one of the producers who's playing her dad and I said you know your goal in this scene is to give your father this medicine and then I gave the father the instructions to not take the medicine under any circumstances and just see how that conflict developed and she just didn't back down you know um, and she and not only did she not back down within the scene there was there was a moment in the scene where I was prompting her uh, to throw a stuffed animal at the producer, you know, that she was going to get angry at her dad and start throwing things at him. And uh, she patently refused to do it in the audition, the first time I've ever met her. Um, and I asked her why, and she said, you know, it's, she said, looked me in the eye and said, it's not right to throw things at people that you don't know. Um, and the fact that she was going to defy me, and, and, and not only defy me, but defy me on the grounds of sweetness and morality and being good and doing the right thing, um, that that was so much of who Hush Puppy was, and I don't even know if I recognized that until she did it. But this defiant personality that that is fighting to do good and to and to be sweet that 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 was really something else. So so really, you know, as as I watched the movie, I had to think how much of this is coming out of reality, how much of it is coming out of your imagination. I asked this earlier on, and the more I'm talking to you, the more I'm hearing that. Uh, the the two are are indistinguishable. Yeah, but I mean, I think that it's important to understand that uh, that these weren't that you know, Quvenjane Wallace is absolutely nothing like Hush Puppy. So it wasn't like she was walking in and playing herself. Um, what when I say it's her instincts, it's not her instincts of how to behave in general. It was her instincts about the character um, and and how to perform it because um, you know, in real life, she's. Uh, this very fastidious, you know, fun-loving girl. She's a goofball. She dances and sings. And Hush Puppy is this very quiet, very somber, philosophical little girl, which is nothing like Quavenjane Wallace, you know. So it, it was her instincts for performance, and and uh, you know, and 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 definitely there was. It, it was a very much a collaboration on creating the characters between me and all the actors, but it wasn't reality in any way you know um all the sets were were constructed all the places were made up in a lot of ways and all the characters are are movie characters with um you know although they're first-time actors people acting as a different person so um you know the film is shot so realistically that sometimes people just think that uh we were just out there making a documentary but it was it was the furthest thing from it this is cnn profiles i'm your host michael shoulder we're speaking with director ben zeitlin uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild is his movie. Uh, we were just talking about uh, his star, six-year-old actress. Uh, he says uh, regarding her, we stumbled our way into a miracle. And, and seriously, Ben, that's that's the way I feel a little bit uh, 
that's that's a little bit like I felt when I went into the theater yesterday and saw your movie. <laughs> I, I really, I, th- I think the movie was a miracle. And um, so you've just told us it took you about a year and a half to really figure out what the story was, that it was a story between this little girl and her father. What happened next? Um, well, you know, we, uh, you know, we launched into production and the shoot was this uh, incredibly ragtag operation where we were, you know, the we sort of take this attitude and, and, and do this even in pre-production and really at every stage that we want to really live the story and immerse ourselves in the story that we're telling. Um, so it wasn't this sort of production where we'd shoot all day and people would go back to a hotel room or something like that. We were all, everybody on the crew was living you know, in fishing shacks and, and behind, um, you know, people's houses and their trailers. And some people, my, my sister, who was one of the main um, artists on the film, actually built Wink's house and lived inside the house throughout production. And so she was actually living the same life that that Wink was as as she was making the film. And Wink, so Wink, by the way, we should we, Wink, we should tell the oh, listeners sorry, yeah. are, is, is the father of this miraculous six year old girl. And uh, and so you're all living there and experiencing it. And I have to ask you, you just told us how you discovered uh, uh, Hush Puppy. How did you discover Wink? Well, I'd, I'd known Dwight Henry um, for a long time because he he runs just about, uh, I mean, he runs hands down the best bakery in New Orleans. And I I think I went there probably in 2006 or something I'd been there. But, um, you know, he his bakery was across the street from our casting office. And so we were over there all the time getting the best donuts and eating lunch and, and all that. And originally, we we actually thought that we needed a professional actor to play that role because it's a really difficult role, um, and we didn't think that a first timer could do it. But um, Dwight came over and auditioned one day, and um, you know, really blew us away. And he just has this personality and uh, this sort of belief in himself that he can do anything. And um, you know, we sort of believed that too, and 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 gave him the role and, and cast him as, as as the secondary lead of the film. Wow. And so did Dwight and Quavenjane Wallace, did, did they hit it off right away? Were, were they from the same basic area? No, actually, Dwight is from New Orleans and, and uh, Quavenjane is from Homa, which is about an hour and a half south of New Orleans, closer to where we shot the film. Um, you know, um, so not not that, you know, within Louisiana, they're from different places, but but everybody was from South Louisiana. And I think that's something that really helped because the actors that we were bringing in were largely not from South Louisiana. And we had tried out several people with Covengine and uh, the chemistry wasn't quite there. Something wasn't working quite right. And and really from the first time we brought down Dwight, that's where their relationship really started to show itself. And, and, we, and we knew very quickly again, you know, that there was this chemistry there that, that they were going to make a good team. There was a real affection between the two of them. And I think the fact that they were both learning and they were both doing it for the first time created a real equal footing for the two actors that that uh, really was perfect for the relationship because they really treat each other um, as equals in a lot of way in the in the film. And, and uh, the fact that they were both, you know, really stumbling into the unknown um, with 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 starting to act, I think, helped them create a really strong bond. So you have the, the two central actors and how much of a script did you have to give them? And when you gave it to them, how much did that script change over how long a period of time? You know, well, we had a fully written script. Um, and then once we we brought in the actors, um, there was a long process. The sort of final revision of the script was done very much in collaboration with the actors. And so we both um, would do interviews with, with all the cast members. You know, Dwight, I would, Dwight had to keep on um, working while we were doing this stuff. And so I would show up in the bakery at 11 o'clock at night and 
all while he was making the donuts, we'd be talking about his life and going through the script. And I learned a tremendous amount from him and, and, and revised the script a tremendous amount based on both the way that he, he said things and, and, and also, you know, his his commentary on, on what was happening in the film and what, what it was about. And so a lot was sort of um, rewritten during rehearsal and during these interviews, um, you know, and then we sort of got at the end of that process to to a very solid script. And when we actually proceeded into production, we we very much shot the script that existed. So, you know, the, the but the process of creating that script involved a lot of collaboration and improvisation, um, you know, but but it all leads towards having a solid document to work from when you when you go into production. So you uh, bring us back a little bit. You are how old now? I'm 30 now. And and you you did graduate in in film studies. Um yeah, yeah, I went to a I, I didn't go to I didn't go to a film school proper, but I I studied film at a liberal arts college. Where where did you go? It's called Wesleyan. It's in Connecticut. Yep. And so you didn't uh you didn't go to a film college. Well, what, but that was your major, right? Right. Was did that have the biggest impact on how you approach things or did something else? Did your upbringing? I mean, how were you able to get into a situation that was as physically challenging, based on what I see, uh, and logistically challenging? How did you How did you manage to attack that and create this? Was it more your upbringing, your education, what you experienced after school? What were What were the pivotal moments there? You know, I, I actually think that the way that we made the film uh, is a pretty direct extension of making art with my sister growing up, you know, which we're still working together. And, you know, when we were f- little kids, we'd make puppet shows out of whatever was around the house. And, you know, the idea of just creating a story with what's around um, and, and and doing it in a homemade way and, and, and the idea of making a story is, is part of, is partly living the experience of it. You know, it, I think it, the way I wanted to make films w- was an extension of that as opposed to, you know, a desire to sort of work in the film industry proper. And and certainly when I was in school, there were a lot of filmmakers that inspired me um, because of their immersive approach, like um, Werner Herzog or John Cassavetes, um, you know, um, these guys, who, and or Amir Kusturica was another big one. These guys who really shot films where there was no separation between the life they were living and the film they were making. It, it was an experience uh, out of which films come and so I, I think those filmmakers inspired me but you know I think it was because that's always what I've loved doing is is making things with my friends and and doing it with whatever we have around and, and that was very much the way the film was made it just um, on a much larger scale now you told me uh, before we started the interview you're not a parent uh, but, but I like to speak to a lot of fellow parents and we always wonder well what can we do to create the conditions to produce a child who can maybe fulfill his or her potential as you are clearly fulfilling yours. So lesson number one, let your kids play together. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's, sure. and that's, and that's true. And actually there's a psychologist named Stanley Greenspan, uh, passed away not long ago who has a whole theory called floor time about how to play with your children on the floor and why that inspires. And maybe you can relate an anecdote from the movie how when you get on the floor and let your child take the lead and you enter that child's world, it inspires confidence in the child. The child becomes more verbal, more, more willing to engage. It almost sounds like that's partly the pro- was the process of your younger life and maybe the movie to some degree. Am I reading too much into it? Am I projecting? Um, you know, I, I mean, uh, I, mean I, th- I, I certainly hear what you're saying. You know, I think that... Um, 
I mean, I think that my experience growing up, which I definitely brought into the character of Hush Puppy, was, you know, um, I, I grew up on this alleyway, and I remember, you know, I remember all the different elements of the alley being all these parts of this complex mythology that I created as a kid. And, and you know, it wasn't about, you know, um, you, you know, and one of the things I love about kids, especially at that age, at six years old, you know, um, they'll take any object and turn it into something that's a story um, and, and something that they can imagine. And it doesn't, they don't need necessarily, you know, a figurine that matches into some story they already know. They can take an apple and a lemon and a, a crack in the sidewalk and turn it into an entire universe. Um, and, and that mentality um, is something I v- remember very much from growing up and, and just playing in this alleyway all the time. And I tried to bring that mentality to Hush Puppy in her much more rural setting where, you know, she she doesn't have toys. She she doesn't have friends necessarily, but she has these animals. And so the way in which she understands the world um, is a giant narrative that she builds out of her interactions with these living things that, that populate her her world. So I think that certainly letting kids sort of use their their imagination and flex the, the muscle of their imagination as much as possible um, is, is something that I tried to bring to the character of Hush Puppy and um, the Quivengine certainly had as we were making the film. Where did where did you get the confidence though? Because uh, did you, along the way, did you have people, mentors who you trusted, telling you you are on the right track, or or was this just something totally internal? Um, I mean, I had lots of great teachers, you know, all through my life, and and you know, I think particularly my parents. Um, my parents are both folklorists, and so. Um, they have a very creative job that's that's all about appreciating sort of folk art and and um, all these people that make art in little ways and and people who uh, create things that are beautiful from whatever they have. And so I, I think that you know my parents' appreciation for that and appreciation for those qualities that that me and my sister had. Um, you know I, I remember growing up and really not understanding that um what a career was you know i i saw my parents wake up every morning and do exactly what they wanted to do and you know i never sort of grew up feeling like i i had to get a job or i had to be worried or afraid about um you know following sort of my my instincts with um just you know wanting to make art and tell stories so i think that their their belief in that and and their encouragement um and the way they live their own lives were certainly things that you know made me always feel like if I just stick with with what I'm doing and um, make make art according to my instincts, it's it's I'll survive somehow. So you had such an unfair advantage. Did, did, <laughs> listen, did, do you do you know the Steve Martin routine where he says, "Okay, how do you become a multimillionaire?" Okay, first get a million dollars, right? It, it's like you know, okay, how do, how do you become an incredibly imaginative filmmaker? Okay, first get a couple of parents who are folklorists. <laughs> right? I mean, this yeah, is this, I cheated. I cheated. You did cheat. <laughs> um, so uh, people are going to ask you, what are you going to do to follow up on this? Well, what's what's you know, what do you do for a follow up act after after letting us experience? And by the way, you mentioned how immersive uh, uh, you mentioned how the filmmakers you love are so immersive. Uh, that's the word I have used to everybody in the past 24 hours since I saw your movie. I said I felt immersed in this place. Where do you want to immerse us next? Um, you know, I'm, I'm still writing that story. I don't, I don't have it fully formed yet. Um, but, um, you know, this sort of method of making this film is very much what I want to continue doing. Um, and you know, I'm, uh, I've been on the road promoting the film for a long time, so I'm unbelievably homesick for Louisiana. So I'm definitely going back there to make the next film. And 
Um, it'll be a totally different world um, and a totally different story, but um, hopefully a lot of the same people will be involved and, and we'll sort of keep on developing this, this method of making films. By the way, the credits went on for a long, long time, and I'm thinking, man, <laughs> you know how to put together a team. So t- tell me, uh, just t- two final questions. Just the music, I saw that you were partly credited for the soundtrack. I want to hear about that. Uh, and, and number two, it really was a huge team. How did you do it? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the soundtrack, um, you know, something that I wrote with my, my co-composer, Dan Romer, um, you know, we tried to draw it very much um, from sort of the, you know, the textures of South Louisiana music. We tried to use, you know, strings and horns and, um, you know, a lot of rickety percussion to kind of evoke, you know, a, a derivation of Cajun music. And there's Cajun music in the film as well. But, you know, we, we sort of were trying to find, you know, a texture that, that felt like South Louisiana and then sort of bring that into the kind of mythical, mystic place that Hush Puppy sees South Louisiana as. And, and so the film's score is very much a blend of kind of um, giant cinematic scores. You know, um, I, I think back to when I was a kid and no matter what I was doing, uh, the Indiana Jones theme song or the E.T. theme song was playing in my head. And so we wanted to really reference those types of grand adventurous scores and and, and constructed in, in the same sort of uh, homemade uh, sort of rickety way that um, that uh, South Louisiana Cajun music comes from. So um, that those are the sort of pieces that went into creating the score. Um, and as far as the production goes, you know, it, it was this massive, uh, it was a massive amount of people, um, you know, and it was really, it was a film made by brute force and by uh, the brute force of a giant community. Um, and all the people that are credited, you know, every time we would have a, a scene that required, you know, 300 extras, um, we wouldn't necessarily do that the traditional way we would uh you know we would throw a party if it was a party scene we would literally throw a party and we would hope that uh you know 300 people showed up and so um you know that that was uh that accumul- accumulated a whole lot of people who worked on the film and and you know yeah you know it just it just was a it was so many different people helping out in so many different ways and it was just because you know i think what people tra- what attracted people to it is that it was like it was a it was a true adventure that we were going on and a lot of people wanted to be a part of it and how did you come up with the name Beasts of the Southern Wild? Um, it actually came from the play uh, that, that Lucy wrote. And uh, there was a scene that um, Miss Bathsheba, who's the teacher in the film, um, is teaching her children. Uh, her children are, are beating up on each other and being mean to each other. And she says something like, um, can you guys just please learn some sweetness and kindness and how to take care of each other before we all get devoured by the Beasts of the Southern Wild? Um, and I always love that line. And... Um, you know, it, it resonated in all kinds of ways um, in the film because um, there's a saying in the film where, where the characters use use the the term "beast it" uh, as a as a sort of rallying cry to to say you know charge into it, be tough, be strong, be fearless. And so you know, um, the word "beasts" resonates um, with with a lot of different ways with the characters, and of course, also you know, it is a film with a giant 15 foot you know, beasts emerging from the ice caps charging towards the bathtub. So, uh, you know, the title fit in a lot of different ways. Which, by the way, the, uh, those beasts, they did make me think just a little bit, and yet so different, but a little bit of Maurice Sendak. Sure, yeah. The the, the Oroks were very much inspired by the cave paintings, which is something that I'm uh, unbelievably obsessed with. Um, you know, the, the paintings at Lascaux and Petchmerl, um, and, and the sort of narrative that Hush Puppy has seeing herself as a as a descendant of the sort of early man and the 
the the fight to survive that our oldest ancestors had against sort of the animal kingdom is something that Hush Puppy sees herself um, in in parallel with. So that that was the that was the origin of the beast in the film. And it's interesting because now I'm obsessed with with those cave paintings ever since you put them on the thigh of one of your lead actresses. <laughs> so and yeah, that that yeah. that people just have to see the movie for and and also that just this whole idea of survival. I mean, some of those again, you have to see the movie, but. Those eating scenes and how Hush Puppy eats makes me feel like, <laughs> you know, it, it it's almost a land of plenty. It is. It is. It really is. I mean, that that was always the idea is, um, you know, they, they live in a place of such incredible abundance of natural resources, um, you know, and, and even though it's a place that doesn't have technology, it's not a place with commerce or, or money. Um, it's, you know, they're 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 living a, a decadent um, and, and joyful life of celebration and feasting and culture and music. And, um, you know, and, and, and that abundance is, is very much inspired. You know, anytime you go down to, to South Louisiana, um, if, if somebody's having crabs, um, make sure you get invited over because you'll, you'll never see a bounty, uh, quite like, um, eating seafood in South Louisiana. Well, listen, Ben Zeitlin, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Uh, we're not allowed to officially root for you at the Oscars, but we will be watching <laughs> you. Uh, and I guess one of the lessons, or you've confirmed it for me again, if, if you live your life, if you produce your movies like a true adventure, as you say, people will want to be a part of it. I hope so. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us at CNN Profiles. Thank you. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.